Hey folks, welcome to Narratives. Narratives is a podcast exploring the ways in which the world is better than in the past, the ways it is worse, and the paths towards a better, more definite vision of the future. I'm your host, Will Jarvis, and I want to thank you for taking the time out of your day to listen to this episode. I hope you enjoy it. You can find show notes, transcripts, and videos at narrativespodcast.com. Well, Luke, how are you doing this afternoon? Hey, I'm doing really well, Will. How about you? Good, doing good, doing good. Um, I, I want to thank you for taking the time to come on the show today. And to get us started, do you mind giving us a brief bio and some of the big ideas you're interested in? Sure. Uh, brief bio, uh, born and raised in Michigan, went to Stern undergrad, worked on Wall Street for a little bit, uh, worked in private equity and left in my early 20s, moved to California and ended up founding four companies in my 20s. Uh, a couple successes, uh, a, a huge failure, and then I walked away from one out of, out of sheer boredom, pretty much. Um, and then in my late 20s, I had a Oh, I call it a quarter life crisis. Uh, hopefully it wasn't a midlife crisis. Hope it was a quarter life crisis. Uh, <laughs> took some, took some time away and, you know, realized I had this deep desire to immerse myself in philosophy and classics. I sort of, uh, I guess I, I yearned for the classical education I never had. And I, I had the luxury of being able to give it to myself essentially. Um, and sort of self-taught myself a lot of this stuff. And, what I thought would be a six or 12 month um, time to do that, traveling around the world, reading everything that I wanted to read, ended up turning into more of a, more of a five-year journey. Um, I moved to Italy for a few years. I seriously discerned a religious vocation at one point, uh, spent some time you know, in and out of some monasteries on retreats. And uh, I was an odd duck in that uh, situation, you know, given you know, background in finance and especially in the startup world, that's, that's not common. Um, so, you know, that's, and then I, I eventually sort of came back to the States and re-immersed myself in a lot of the same stuff I was doing before, um, you know, in the startup world and in business investing, but with uh, trying to bring a different framework to it and a different perspective uh, and a better appreciation for what it was I was really trying to do and what was important to me, which is really to try to build a healthy human ecology. Um, you know, some big ideas. Um, oh, geez, I wrestled with God my whole life. So, you know, that's, that's a big idea. Um, I ended up getting a degree in theology during that five-year period. Um, obviously, Girard, Rene Girard, um, is, has been highly influential to me. Uh, I wrote a book on his core ideas to try to uh, make them a bit more accessible uh, to, to the broader public. Um, uh, work has been a big idea of mine. You know, I've been thinking about it a lot uh, these days, especially given, you know, the so-called great resignation. I've been thinking about the, the reasons um, why people work, um, a spirituality of work, how people find meaning in their work. You know, that question has been really important to me um, pretty much my whole life. Uh, you know, and broader questions of, um, you know, sort of the intersection of, um, I would say, technology religion and philosophy. So, uh, you know, big fan of a book and, and interested in a book um, and, and ideas by a guy named Michael Novak, who wrote a great book called The Spirit of Democratic Capitalism, where 
kind of all these all these things kind of come together in the same um, in the same book where you're sort of grappling with these questions like you know what does capitalism look like in in the world that we live in today what does it mean to be spiritual in the way that we you know in the, in the world that we live in today so I kind of um, my, my meme for for those three things is um, Athens Jerusalem and Silicon Valley right like what does Athens have to do with Jerusalem have to do with Silicon Valley that goes all the way back to the you know a second century question that Tertullian asked we said what does Athens have to do with Jerusalem and he was saying you know, what does faith have to do with reason, essentially? You know, what do these two things have to do with each other? Um, you know, and he was basically saying that, you know, we shouldn't be, Christians shouldn't be looking to, to you know, rationalism and philosophy, right? We're, we're in Jerusalem. And I think today we have to add a third city to that mix, uh, call it Silicon Valley, it's not a city, but or call it San Francisco, whatever you want, that stands in for me or represents technology, capitalism. So, what you know, how do these three things come together? Um uh, I call it the three city problem, kind of riffing off the three body problem, right? Where it's like, you know, that you, you sort of, you can't calculate where these things are going to end up in space, right? It's impossible to do that. So the way that these three things are interacting in very interesting ways right now is something that also fascinates me a lot. Definitely, definitely. I love that. And that, these things are all so connected, right? I remember um, I was listening to a lecture by Gerard over the weekend, kind of prepping for this podcast. One of the things he said was, you know, a lot of times we think we stop burning witches because, you know, we, we, we started becoming rational, but he's like, maybe we became rational because we stopped burning witches. So all these things, you know, they, they come together in, in, in very interesting ways. Um, we're still we're still burning witches though unfortunately right. we still are we still are but yep, it's yep. perhaps in some ways it works just a little bit less well than it than it did in the exactly. past exactly. um I, I i'm curious you know uh I, I hear your story i really enjoyed the book by the way it was it was excellent um and uh we'll plug it at the end of the podcast and make sure uh, people have show notes so they they know where to go and find it um but you know one, one of the things i found with a lot of people that have come to christianity on the podcast especially tech people usually you know, there, there's this process where they go through, you know, maybe their lives are really hectic. They're chasing like a lot of goals, which uh, maybe they're of this world and they're not particularly pure um, and, or chasing their desires, I should say. And then they, they reach this breaking point And then this have, you know, this has them question everything in their lives and they go out and, and, and in some ways they find God and they find their way back out, out of the desert, if that makes sense. Um, was this kind of the case for you if you had to chart your own journey like uh you know things just got more chaotic you know you, you were chasing things like you didn't really know why you're chasing them and then one day you know things kind of break and you have to reevaluate hmm. you know i i wouldn't quite describe it as um things got super chaotic actually i mean i was in um yeah, I would say, because I mean, chaos and disorder is a big theme. And I think it's a really important theme. Actually, I think chaos and disorder, I mean, Jordan Peterson talks about it a lot, but it's actually like at the core of everything that Rene Girard writes about too, right? I mean, um, you know, the scapegoat mechanism as, as a mechanism of order right. and disorder both. We can talk about that later. But so uh, I wasn't in a particular, particularly large amount of disorder at the time in my life before I chose to explore this deeper. Um, I was raised Catholic, sort of cradle Catholic. And um, I think that I, th so I think people can, can have conversions in, in, in a lot of different ways, in many ways as there are people, right? Um, a lot of people that read Girard end up, um, sort of coming to an understanding of Christianity in a highly intellectual way. Um, and I would argue sometimes almost an overly intellectual way. And I've been, you know, trying to do that. You know, I think, 
Peter Thiel is the way he describes kind of what Gerard did for him is it sort of made everything at least click intellectually. But for me, that wasn't really enough. Um, you know, and, and I, I think that I had in, I had an experience of, um, I guess my own weaknesses and shortcomings and it, that became really apparent to me at a certain point, you know, call it, you know, my own sinfulness. And that was really that, that combined, right. With, I think the, the form, the intellectual formation that I had received, not only from Gerard, from many other thinkers um, in the classical tradition for me, um, I think those things combined really are, are what sort of like led me to the, to the brink. Um, allowed me to let go of my own will a little bit. And, uh, you know, it didn't happen overnight. You know, I don't sort of have this kind of like moment. It was just this kind of long, like slow, slow burn. Um, a lot of it, me like letting, letting go of kind of um, you call it a will to power or something like that. Right. That I had to, to control every, everything in my life and in letting go of that, I sort of described this in the first part of my book with, you know, when the Zappos deal fell apart, you know, there was a bit of letting go that I experienced as tremendous freedom, um, which was a paradoxical sensation, sort of a paradoxical thing for me to feel that the very thing that I thought I needed to, to be free was the very thing that was sort of, you know, keeping me in prison inside of myself. Definitely. That. It, it makes a lot of sense. It makes a lot of sense. I, I'm curious. I, I want to talk about desire. Um, and, and this plays into, you know, kind of like, a, you know, the Zappos deal and, and how we got here, um, how you got here. Uh, how do we come to desire anything in the first place? And, and why is that important? Hmm. I, I mean, I, I certainly follow Gerard's uh, ideas on this. Um, you know, I, I haven't found any. I think when you combine Gerard with sort of a, especially a classic, um, for me, a Thomistic understanding of desire and teleology, right? That, you know, desire, you know, we, we desire, ultimately it's a signpost leading us towards something. And the big question is, you know, what, what is that thing? Uh, and a theist is going to have a, a different answer than somebody who's not. Um, but Gerard's, you know, I, I think, um, you know, and for the theist, you know, God is the, is the originator of all desire and it leads back to him. Uh, but Gerard's, sort of understanding of the genesis of desire being in and through human relationships was a game changer for me. Um, it really exploded my very modern individualist uh, idea of myself. And I realized that, you know, I'm constituted by the relationships in my life. And I think that we all are um, beginning with my parents. And, you know, I was leaning into the, what Gerard calls the romantic lie, the romantic lie of my own autonomy, the romantic lie that there's a straight line between me and the things that I want. And as I looked back on my life uh, from the very beginning, uh, I, I could sort of see some of the very strong models that had led me in different directions, including why I wanted to go to the college I wanted to go to, uh, why I wanted to work on Wall Street, uh, even though I hated the kinds of work I always did, even I should have known better. I should have known when I was an undergrad that working on spreadsheets was going to make me miserable. Um, so we, you know, we, we, we come to desire the things we desire, not entire, in my opinion, and this is a, a point of debate among um, people that, that read and follow Gerard. I don't, I wouldn't say entirely through mimesis. Um, that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Right. Cause I mean, there are plenty of things that I, 
I desire through, you know, multi factorial. I mean, like I walk in a room, there's all kinds of reasons why I could be attracted alone. There's all kinds of reasons why I could be attracted to a certain piece of food at the buffet and not another one. Um, you know, so, or, you know, a certain, um, you know, certain person and, you know, that we, that, that can have something to do with biology, something to do with psychology. But I think that at a certain point, there's always a little mimesis involved and it's, it sort of falls on a spectrum, you know, mimesis, meaning that we're affected by what other people want. Um, they model desires to us and we adopt those desires as our own without usually knowing that we're doing it. And that, that, is I think really important to understand that it operates on a kind of a continuum or a spectrum. And lately I like to use the example of, you know, Bitcoin. Um, you, know, you can have two people that buy the same amount of Bitcoin on the same day. Uh, and one of them could do it for far more mimetic reasons than the other one, if that makes sense. You know, uh, one of them could have done research and have really rational explanations for it. It might be a, a little mimesis. I mean, how would they known to have looked into Bitcoin in the first place, right? If, if there wasn't some of that going on, but um, far less mimesis than somebody who, who does it as sort of a, a, a knee jerk, you know, reaction uh, where FOMO is kind of the, the dominating force in the decision-making process and the desire. Uh, so I, I think that's, you know, in, in, we can sort of look at a lot of things in our life along this kind of spectrum. And then we can ask ourselves seriously, like how mimetic am I actually being? Um, and so it's, it's really a good examination of conscience for me. Cause sometimes when I'm honest with myself, I, I see that um, I, 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 on the surface, I can give you these, like what I, what I think are really smart reasons why I do pretty much everything that I do. Right. Um, we always think that, but um, you know, being honest with myself, I, I realized that, you know, there's, there's a lot of mimesis driving a lot of the things that I want. Got it. So it's something like we should, we should spend more time thinking about why we want certain things and, and understand that, you know, copying drives a lot of it and, and copying, you know, kind of our models, people we look up to. Um, and, and we should probably, yeah, spend more time thinking about that. Um, I, I'm curious, you know, how do you think about differentiating between, you know, desires that are more pure versus desires that are driven by, um, you know, you know, this mimetic kind of energy, this force, it should, should, is it just like sitting down and thinking like, okay, like, why am I desiring this thing? Is it just the, that process of just sitting there and taking a moment to think about it? Or is there, is there some other criteria you use to think about what, um, what desires are kind of more pure and, and good versus things that are kind of um, bad, if that makes sense? Yeah. Um, you use the word pure, which immediately calls to mind, you know, one of the Beatitudes, right? Like blessed are the, the, the pure in heart and they will see God um, straight from the Sermon on the Mount. So um, what does pure of heart mean? I, I sort of interpret that to mean a purity of desire. And, you know, it's hard for me to answer the question without sort of bringing my own tradition into it. You know, um, what makes the desire more, more pure um, or less pure? Uh, I mean, certainly, uh, you know, sin has something to do with that, right? Um, from a from a Christian standpoint, um, you know, the, the classic the classic vices, the classic sins. Um, so, you know, that's that's certainly one factor. So, I think you know that's something that I I sort of examine. I mean, envy being the one that Gerard said was kind of the predominant form of mimetic desire in our world today, and it's the one that people like to talk about the least. Like, 
far less than than lust, right? I mean, people openly brag about their lust. Um, well, at least at least a lot of young men that I know um, right. will will openly brag about it. But envy, not so much, you know. Um, so I, I I think that from a Christian framework, um, I think the answer is pretty clear, right? I mean, there's certain sort of biblical guideposts there to sort of evaluate, right, the things that we want, right, and have a, have an understanding of of purity. Um, I, I, let me just put that aside, though, for a second, because we got, I could talk about that all day. Um, just on a basic level, I think a lot of times we're talking about mimetic desire or just desires in general, and it can become very abstract um, and, and uh, that doesn't seem very like the desire doesn't seem like it's grounded in, in much of anything at all. And I think, so what, what does it mean to sort of, you know, be a little bit more grounded in desire? Well, you know, just in the last few months, having dealt with some, some really difficult family situations, my mom was in the hospital. I, I took over as the primary caregiver for my dad. And suddenly, I mean, really in, in the course of 24 hours, like I didn't, I didn't have the luxury of being able to like, think about like, well, where do I want to go on vacation? Right. Uh, you know, what do I want to, what do I want to, you know, I don't know, what do I want to write next? What do I, you know, like all of these kind of like abstract things that I, I am able to do, um, were just gone. And I was sort of grounded in this real, like concrete reality of the responsibilities that were in front of me, you know, sick parents, um, you know, a, a house that I had to clean and get on the market and, family responsibilities, people that have children, right? Um, you know, I, I sometimes think like, you know, people have a lot of family responsibilities and, and just do hard work and have to roll up their sleeves. Like this, all this talk about like mimetic desire, it can just be like, well, what are you talking about? Like, I have to like wipe my baby's ass and I have to, you know, do X, Y. And, and so I think that there's a certain like groundedness, right? Those things are by, by nature, they're not as mimetic. Um, because they're just like real incarnate realities, responsibilities that we have to do. And I think that, you know, that can be a tremendous um, gift when we're, we're, we're faced with that. And I think maybe that idea is maybe secretly behind the desire that a lot of people have to, you know, go move on farms and stuff like that. Um, I mean, they always find out that it's not as glamorous <laughs> as it looks in the, in the documentaries. Right. But, you know, I, I do think that, you know, there's some tacit understanding that there's something really like beautiful when we're grounded in, in the real. Definitely. Definitely. I, I, and it almost seems like uh, it, it's, it's fairly easy to spot it in other people. I, it seems like to me, it's some level at least, right? Like I can look at, I remember in college and all these people like, oh my God, like, you know, I really want to go work at Goldman Sachs. And I'm like, man, that, you know, that sounds like really boring, like and terrible, you know what I mean? And, but, but, you know, when you're caught up in it, it's, it, it's like the, it seems so vivid and, and real to some extent and, and very difficult to escape. Absolutely. I mean, um, you know, I, I, when I had stumbled on Gerard's thought, I saw it in, in, in everybody, but, but myself and, uh, I, I, I joked with some of my friends too. Um, you know, when I sort of was in that process of discernment, uh, I was super weird, man. Cause I, I, like I moved to Rome and I ended up living, I mean, at, at 29 years old, I ended up living with like, you know, a hundred other guys with a shared bathroom after I'd made a lot of money in my twenties. Um, and, and lived a pretty comfortable life. And, uh, so it was a jarring experience, right? It was very humbling. And, you know, you get, you get there and you're like, well, these are all guys that are like seriously just discerning, you know, religious life. And the first thing you say 
to yourself, or first thing that I said to myself is, shit, these guys aren't that holy. And then uh, about a week later, I said, shit, I'm not. <laughs> and, and, you know, you, you sort of see all of like the petty little, um, and you'll be living in sort of a sterile closed environment like that. It's, you know, what I call in the book, like a fresh manistan. It's like, you know, basically like being a freshman in high school all over again, but even worse because everybody's 29 and everybody has a big ego and, and, you know, people are like paying attention to how much spaghetti the other guy's putting on his plate because he took more. So um, it's just can be really crazy. And then you realize that you start doing that stuff too. Um, and it takes a certain amount of awareness or a good mentor, somebody to, to be honest with you and tell you, um, when you're doing that. Um, so yeah, you know, that, and that's really the challenge with this, um, is, you know, it's easy to spot it in, in, you know, in the economy, I think, um, in the stock market, uh, but the more personal it is, the harder it's always going to be. Definitely. Definitely. Um, we had Jerry Bowyer on the show um, a while back, and and one of the things he mentioned is is a kind of an antidote to these things is to instead of looking around, you know, it's it's kind of to look up, to look up to and try and emulate Jesus. The question I didn't ask him then, which I'll ask you now, um, is what does that what does that mean in practice? Does that make sense? What attributes of Jesus should we seek to emulate, if that's even a useful model? Well, I certainly think Jesus is a useful model, um, uh, certainly at least for a Christian. <laughs> um, and uh, I mean, even in his humanity, I think he's a useful model for anybody. Uh, um, you know, sort of what it's, it's funny. So I, I people ask me all the time. So like, you know, what model should we adopt? And um, I think, you know, look for models of humanity, people that model a different way of being human, right? A different humanity. I think um, even even when one sort of strips um, the claims of divinity aside, you know, I think that like what's the what's what's the most attractive way to be human, right? And and I think that actually is what led me down the path of of, of exploring Christianity more closely in my adult life because I was like, well, that sort of seems like the kind of man that I want to be before I had really got into the theological questions, um, and. Uh, so the humanity of Christ, I think, is, is worth meditating on and reflecting on. Um, and when you see, um, you, know, you know, Gandhi sort of famously said, you know, I've, uh, maybe I'd be a Christian if I'd ever met one. You know, um, when you see any semblance of that in the real world, uh, it's incredibly attractive um, just on a human level. Um, and it's sort of a, a chord that, that sort of, you know, pulls one to explore a little bit deeper. You know, it, it can be abstract, though. Um, and so... You know, for me, I'll just personally, for me, um, you know, being a Catholic, it's it's grounding myself in like the life of the church, right? So, I mean, which is you know, sort of the body of Christ. So it's it's you know, inserting myself into liturgy and worship and a, and a rhythm of life and a plan of life. That's how it's concrete for me, you know. And and without that, um, and it's also incredible, like sort of, it's 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 in a way. It's, um, it's the best way for me to say this. There's um, in, inserting myself into a tradition and sort of submitting myself to it uh, has its own taking on that yoke sort of um, is a way of following Christ. Um, the way that I think like, you know, having children like changes a man for instance, right? Like it just happens. Like it's, it's just going to happen. 
um, without you even uh, having to spend a whole lot of time thinking about it, right? Like just by the sheer necessity of having to do certain things and take on certain responsibilities. And for me, um, that sort of like liturgical life, like the, the life that I've constructed for myself as, as a member of a community uh, has, has done that for me and has made it, made it concretized and incarnate for me. So, you know, that there's probably a lot more to say there about just like the importance of being a part of, of a community in general, um, aside from an ecclesi ecclesial community. Um, I think that's kind of where a lot of growth happens. And, you know, that can happen. It could be in a company. It could be in a family. Um, you know, sort of at the, the, the more intimate that community, the better. And, of course, you know, the church, if it's actually functioning correctly, is meant to be a very intimate community. Is it something like a reminder that maybe uh, you're not the the most important thing going on all the time? Like like your individual self is not. Uh, there's more important things, you know, the world and that that you should be paying attention to. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, it's funny you, you say that. So I've um, I'm a big fan of of retreats and specifically silent retreats, and I've been working on organizing some of these for super busy, super successful. Um, people, entrepreneurs, because um, I've, I've just seen like there's a huge demand and a huge hunger for it. And, you know, I get the, and, and I, I did one of these not too long ago. And from a few people who I know well enough to be able to give them a hard time, it's like, well, I'm so busy. There's no way that I could ever leave my company for three days to go on one of these things. <laughs> like the, the whole thing would just fall apart in a matter of three days if I was to step away right. and not be on my phone. And I'm like, dude, you're not that important. Like you're, you're important, but I promise you that, you, you know, you, you stepping away for three days is not going to make or break this company because people are going to be able to step up and you're just not as important as you think you are. Right, exactly. <laughs> um, so like, I know them well enough to be able to give them a hard time about that. But I mean, there's always an excuse. So, so the short answer is yes. Um, and I think that's a big, that's a big part of it, right? Like understanding that we're, we're part of, a, of, of something bigger here. All of us are part of a tradition, whatever it is. Um, we've been shaped by it probably far more than we know. Um, and, you know, for me, it was sort of a matter of like rejecting it as, you know, as hard as I could, um, you know, and then realizing that it had sort of, you know, really shaped me um, as, as a person and then inserting myself back into it later in life. Definitely, definitely. I'm very McIntyreing, I guess, and, and, right. and sort of some of this stuff. That's good. That's good. Um, I, I want to talk about envy a little bit more. You know, I, I was struck by the thought a, a couple of days ago that, you know, social media platforms, things like Instagram in particular, the study I read Jonathan Haidt uh, either put out or retweeted. And it, it was something along the lines of if you look at the the rise of um, teen suicides, it corresponds with the rise of of social media, particularly Instagram, uh, you know, it's like photo based medium where you only show the best parts of your life that ever happened. And it's like, it just, you know, hyper mimetic and, and just straight into your veins. Um, do you think this is like something where it's often missed in the debates about social media is like this hyper mimetic um, kind of attitude and, and like the envy that comes out of these platforms um, because it is just so taboo to talk about envy? Yes. Yeah. You know, and I think the work that a lot of some people are doing in the space, uh, John talks about it, Tristan Harris talks about it. Um, the, you know, the focus is really on the tech itself and on the, the dopamine hits of the tech. Um, 
so it's a pretty materialist kind of, you know, way to look at it. Um, and I think all that stuff is, is, is true. I think it's all true. I just don't think that it, it tells the whole story. Um, you know, it's, it's the irony is that we create the technology, um, which means that it's derivative of us, it's right. subordinate to us. And then we end up imitating the, the technology, you know, that we created, um, you know, and there's, there's actually, there's a beautiful Psalm that kind of talks about, um, you know, the, the, you know, the, the, the imitation of people in, imitating the works of their hands um, and how perilous that is. Um, you know, those are pretty low models to imitate. And, you know, I, it wasn't a general, general Jim Mattis said something like, you know, PowerPoints making us all stupid or something like that. And it's sort of like outlawed in the Pentagon. Um, you know, I mean, it's just, it's just an example of, of, you know, tech technology. Like we, we can form ourselves to the very tech that we built. Um, you know, I think, I think porn has had detrimental um, neurological uh, effects on, on us. We have a whole generation that's been raised with us. Um, there's been like, you know, trickle up a porn aesthetics that have made their way into people's bedrooms. And like, we don't even understand like how much this is affecting us, but envy is something that nobody really talks about. Um, you know, I didn't Instagram, they launched their own internal study and this come out a few months ago and they found that something like, you know, one in three teenage girls have, has really bad, like sort of body image issues because of Instagram, like Instagram's (laughs) internal research identified this and they didn't want it to get out. Um, similar study. And there was a, uh, there's an Island in, geez, I think it's in, it's, it's, it's around Fiji. Um, there was an Island where there were, there was not a single television on the whole Island. Um, they were introduced. I think it was in the seventies and within like a year of television being introduced on that Island, um, a massive proportion of, of young people, particularly young girls, had body image issues and i I remember very distinctly that the crazy thing was that in that that in that culture um being skinny was not attractive it was actually the opposite like being too skinny was like not a sign of health um uh and within a year of having television introduced in that island in the 70s totally reversed um because they were being exposed to images from from the west um of, of extremely skinny people um, and I think that now was back in the seventies and it was with television. And I think Instagram is just the same study on steroids. So, you know, envy is part of that. Um, geez, I, when we took these studies, I don't know why they all talk about teenage girls because guys right, are, they, yeah. as, as, as bad, if not worse, um, that's maybe that's telling in and of itself yep. that we don't, we're not examining this enough. Right. Um, I mean, but certainly like one thing I've noticed just over the last few years, um, is, you know, the propensity of men to um, brag about both their gains and their losses in the stock market, right? right? It's like, especially on Reddit. Um, and we're all paying attention, at least if you're on those platforms, like you can't help but not pay attention and measure yourself in some way. And I think that it ends up becoming the real power of social media. I think that the, the I mean, I lived in Vegas, I understand the 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 effects that a slot machine can, it has on the human brain. But <clears throat> these are all extremely sort of materialist views to me. And the effect that it sort of the, the cause I mean, I, I, I do think of Gerard and a lot of the things he's writing about desire as being somewhat spiritual um, desire being for me and sort of a spiritual plane. And I think that that is far more powerful um, to think about um, that, that, that draw that temptation to, to constantly, 
um, compare uh, out of envy and out of pride is the real engine. I think I wrote in the book that it's the engine of social media uh, far more than, than, you know, anything that dopamine labs um, real company could ever come up with to engineer their apps to be more addictive. Definitely. Definitely. The, the spiritual plane does seem to be uh, at some level much more important at the very least. Um, I, I'm curious, you know, it, we, it seems like we live in an age where at some level, um, the individual is being, you know, smashed. It, it's like everything's collective. Like even in id Paul, you know, identity politics. I think about it. it it's like uh, we're essentially defined by categories. Like where do you sit in any given category? Um, things like this. Uh, I, I'm curious. You know, how important is is how important is emphasizing the uniqueness of each individual? I think that's an important lesson I get from Christianity is how everyone is unique. Everyone is important, but it's something that seems to be somewhat missed and, and the individual has been somewhat smashed within the modern discourse. Yeah. I mean, I think it's even been, um, I think it's even missing within Christianity um, for, for the most part um, within the church. I mean, I see it myself. Um, so, you know, John Paul II, I think he was writing way back in the sixties, um, during the cold war wrote, um, and this has really jumped out at me, this quote, I'll never forget it. He said, the evil of our times consists in a pulverization, a pulverization, a pulverization of the fundamental uniqueness of each person. That evil is even more on the metaphysical order than the moral order. So sort of a metaphysical degradation, a metaphysical pulverization of the fundamental uniqueness of the human person. So, you know, he's a Christian personalist. Um, you know, the Pope was not this like hyper individualist. That's not what he's saying. Um, but, you know, he, communism was very much on his mind and sort of this collectivist sort of trend. And I see it again um, in, in the world. Um, you know, he's warning about that on the, meta, on the metaphysical order. Now, he was writing really before the internet, um, as we know it. And that line is so haunting to me because I'm, I'm now thinking about what um, something like digital identity does to, you know, to adopt his word, right? To pulverize our unique metaphysical sort of um, identity, um, to homogenize us into um, bits and bytes or, you know, NFTs on, on a blockchain or whatever. whatever. Um, so there's, there's kind of a mass homogenization going on uh, that I think we have to fight against. Uh, so I'm, I'm, not, um, I'm not a techno-utopian. Um, and one of the main reasons that I'm not, uh, even though I think some people that are have some really smart ideas, um, I've, I haven't heard a convincing case for it not continuing to pulverize the fundamental uh, uniqueness and unrepeatability of each, of each human person at the metaphysical level. Um, and I think that's really important to, um, to put the brakes on or to think seriously about how technology is, is, is shaping that. Because Girard himself said that um, when there's this mass homogenization and when there's kind of a, um, a, a, a too much similarity in the metaphysical order between people, then you have a crisis of undifferentiation, crisis of similarity, really, um, that ends up, you know, making people fight to differentiate themselves in increasingly um, crazy ways. Um, and, you know, people end up 
you know, sort of you get into Lilliputian fights about the, the correct way to, to slice an egg, you know, eventually. Um, so, you know, it's, it, it is concerning. I think it's actually the number one, number one thing that anybody in tech needs to think about. Um, you know, what do we do about that? Um, what can we do? Well, I think, you know, attending to the uniqueness of each person um, is really important. Uh, getting to know people on an individual level, breaking through the mediated reality that is social media. Um, you know, we I think we forget how weird it is. I don't know if you've ever met anybody that's been uh, like a mutual friend of yours on social media. Like, have you ever met anybody for the first time in real life? It's it's weird, man. It's really yeah. weird. And, and then, you know, you like, you, you forget, um, the, the reality of the person, you know, and, and, and the uniqueness, you know, and you're sitting down to talk to them, you know, you're getting a beer and you're like, oh, their voice sounds different. Are they, you know, you, you know, you even pick up little traits and characteristics that were flattened, suppressed, whether intentionally or unintentionally in the digital world. And there's kind of this like awesome, awesome, like breakthrough of, of, you know, this metaphysical reality um, that, that, that we so often forget. And I think that we have to be intentional um, about making that happen because the world doesn't seem to be doing it for us. Like, it seems like we, this is an area where it's most important to be anti-memetic and to not just go with the flow because the flow seems to be, you know, floating downstream seems to be towards less and less of our uh, fundamental uniqueness. Definitely. Well, and, and it seems like even that at the level of, you know, people are incredibly lonely today. They, you know, people are, they're, they're not involved in social groups like they were like the PTA and, you know, all kinds of different things, let alone church attendance. I mean, church attendance is just like, you know, it's flatlined, right? Um, do you see that kind of trend reversing? I mean, you know, like, especially like in, in your case, like, you know, are you bullish on church attendance going back up if people like, more in-person community once we get through the pandemic, or is this just like a continuing trend where we're more connected at one level um, than we ever have been before, but at, at the basic human level, we're less connected than we've, we ever really have been. Um, I'm certainly not bullish on church attendance. Um, I, I sort of follow, you know, the, 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 the former um, Pope, um, Pope Benedict, who, you know, who basically said, you know, it seems like we're headed towards being, an inevitably smaller church, but hopefully stronger church. Um, uh, I do notice it's, it's funny. Um, and you know, the, where I go, like the, in some of the more traditional communities, there seems to be, they seem to be bursting at the seams with, uh, with attendance, um, and a lot of young people and some of the other, um, you know, places where you, you have some kind of, uh, I don't know, I call it more like sort of modernist sort of uh, like lit liturgies are, are empty and, and the, the emptying out is not enough to compensate for what I see flowing over to, to some of the other communities. So I think, I think it's going to continue to decrease. Um, and I'm, I'm just speaking within the Catholic world. I think, um, you know, mainline Protestant churches are, are in serious trouble. Um, so I, you know, I think people are finding substitutes for, for that. I think they're finding them in uh you know everything from crypto to uh to you know discord servers to uh to the workplace and i think that there are a lot of substitutes now for that so um human connection and, and you know the, the broader point is human connection in general um and i think it's really really important to not allow the digital connections to be a substitute for the in-person connections um can they scale um not really but, right. you know, I don't, I don't, um, you know, 
I don't, I don't know. I feel like scale has sort of become a bit of a God, um, you know, scale at all costs. And if you can't scale it, it's not worth anything. Um, man, there's a great book. I, I should look it up real quick. There's a great book that just came out um, all about scale and I'm, I'm only five pages into it, which is why I can't remember the name of it. Um, but I, I highly recommend it because it sort of takes this very nuanced view of the way that we think about scaling things, which everybody in my world and yours probably, you know, looks at leverage scale. These are all wonderful right. things, but um, it, 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 it acknowledges where they're important. And then it, it acknowledges like where we don't need to scale, where we shouldn't scale, where scale is actually detrimental um, to human life. Definitely. Definitely. And it- I mean, it's so interesting, right? I mean, even even in our public spaces, I mean, I mean, no one even, no one can really go into public spaces anymore. Like, uh, I, I think about the areas where I actually interacted with people of all different walks of life. And the last time that happened to me was in high school. You know, I went to a public school in rural Eastern North Carolina. I got to meet everybody. I think about how few people I know even had that experience. And now, you know, we we can't even get together in person. Period. Due to the pandemic. Um, but it just seems like this trend and, and, you know, offices are going away. Uh, it, it just in-person community just seems to be on the decline and it seems like a really bad trend just generally. I, I totally agree. You know, and the name of that book, just so I can, um, I don't like plugging my own book. So now I, I can actually um, plug somebody else's cause it's really good. It's called the voltage effect. Um, how to make good ideas, great and great ideas scale by John list. Um, phenomenal. I, I've, I've, I'm only a little bit into it, but it's, it's great. Awesome. I'll put that, put it in the show notes and be sure to include it. Um, do you mind if I throw out a quote from Gerard and, and just get your take on it? Is that cool? Sure. Cool. Yeah. So Gerard says, um, having repudiated religion in order to become more rational, modern man comes full circle and in the name of superior ra- rationality embraces a rational and technical form of irrationality. What do you think Gerard meant by that? If I remember right, he, uh, he says that, and I say says that rather than writes that because like the vast majority of, of his corpus um, is, in the, is from dialogues and conversations that he had with other people. Um, that's why Cynthia Haven's book, um, Conversations with Gerard is so great because it just captures the conversations. But he said that in the context of talking about um, the, how the modern world is, is sort of different than, than the world, say, you know, pre the French Revolution. And he uses this, he's talking about this phrase, the cult of experts. And he says, um, you know, now having repudiated religion. Um, so let me translate that, having repudiated the old models, okay, having, um, you know, we no longer look to um, the saints or the priests or or anything like this, um, the old models don't work no more. <laughs> you know, we don't look to them. Um, we're, you know, we're, we're too rational for that. So having repudiated all of them, um, and I would say, you know, and throwing the baby out with the bathwater, um, you know, we've now, um, we've now adopted a new kind of model. And this new kind of model is the hyper-rational, um, it's the expert. And he said, you know, now, you know, we used to have the cult of saints. Now we have the cult of experts. And the problem with that is that it's, it's rationalism um, untethered or divorced from everything else, uh, you know, from any kind of uh, framework in, in which rationalism can operate in a healthy way. Um, you know, and, and rationalism, you know, can become extremely tyrannical. 
and some of the worst things in human history. Um, uh, they, they've all had, um, uh, uh, they've all been rationalized by the people that did them. Okay. Um, so, you know, we've come, when he says we've come full circle, we've embraced a rational and technical form of irrationality. Um, he means among other things, you know, that we're just finding, um, just different ways to enact the scapegoat mechanism. Um, but now, um, you know, we stand on our rationality when we do it, um, even though it's, it's a kind of rationality that's, that's divorced from, you know, often sometimes from a moral framework, from any kind of transcendent framework, from anything that would put guardrails on it. And, you know, we, we use it to justify ridiculous things. Um, I mean, look at some of the things that have been done in the name of, of you know, of, of reason in the course of the pandemic, um, you know, this hypermimetic rush um, to some decision um, based on partial, partial reason um, that doesn't account for um, all of the circumstances, that doesn't account for, um, you know, the, the reality for um, all of the different um, complexity that, that goes into to basic decision making, right? I mean, um, you know, it, you know, it's is it is it rational to not allow somebody to see their a dying family member in the hospital who has COVID, right? I mean, like, so you know, these are things that we've been grappling with, and I think that Gerard is is warning against um, the new idols is another way to put it. Um, and you know, he 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 calls them experts, and experts have a bad rap. I'm not against experts, but um, I think what Gerard is warning against is. Um, is having thrown out all of the old models because we're, we, we have to, we, we need models. Right. Um, it's just a matter of where we're going to get them from. And we have to be careful that our, 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 our new gods are not a lot worse than the old ones. You know what you're saying? And I love that explanation reminds me of, um, you know, whenever people say, you know, trust, trust science, uh, they're never, they never mean trust the, the process of forming a hypothesis and testing it, et cetera. They always mean trust, uh, the experts, which is really, really this just interesting thing. Like, you know, it's this new model we need to copy going forward. I find that both, um, when people start talking too much about the science or the experts, they're both of those words to me are poker tells right. for this, this person is full of shit or actually, <laughs> actually doesn't want to have a serious conversation, right. About like testing a, a hypothesis, right. Cause right. science is actually advanced by people um, having different opinions, <laughs> you know, um, that's like, that's the whole point. That's how we move forward. And, you know, when, when we begin to um, when people, when people don't want to see that happen, it's a, and then they start talking about the science and, 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 and trust the experts. It's just a massive red flag. Definitely. Um, are you down for a round of overrated, underrated before we let you go? I'm down. Let's do it. All right. Um, so the the line from Hamlet, Polonius says this, be true to oneself. Is that overrated or underrated? I'm going to go overrated on that one. Um, it wouldn't be very Girardian of me to, to not say that. It's, it's overrated because what does be true to oneself even mean if we're in this dyadic sort of mimetic relationship all the time, right? Um, so, you know, I can't be true to myself unless I'm true to my wife, right? I can't be uh, true to myself unless I'm true to something outside of myself. So I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say that that one is, is overrated, um, but, uh, but it certainly is one that I think uh, 
let's say 90 plus percent of people probably uh, kind of, you know, do, do it, you know, Frank Sinatra as I did it my way. Um, you know, it's, it kind of, it kind of fits right into that, but I, I think it's overrated. Catholicism overrated or underrated. Well, I think, you know, I think you probably guess what my answer to that one is. Um, I, I'm going to say underrated. I'm going to say underrated. Gotcha. Um, I mean, not, not, um, how about, how about two Protestants? So, you know, I, I'm Protestant, you know, it, uh, do Protestants generally underrate Catholicism? And vice versa. Yes. I think, I think that, 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 you know, Catholics, uh, underrate, underrate Protestantism. And I think that, um, the, that Catholics and Protestants would be very wise to, to draw on the rich, um, traditions of the other, right. Like reading like Karl Barth been highly influential for me. Um, you know, cause like, I think, you know, to, to, together, um, you know, form, we, we form a, a bigger picture, right. Of what it means to be a Christian. So, um, and you know, Catholicism, I think, um, it's hard to call something underrated that I guess has formed such a, such a, you know, a huge backdrop to the last 2000 years, um, with the church, um, and the role that it's had to play. Um, but I think that, I think that it's, I think it's underrated because it's some of the, some of the beauty of the tradition has been obscured under some of the sort of tragic scandals that we've seen over the last couple, couple decades, um, which is sort of, you know, call it a, call it a stock that is, um, you know, just had a, a, a like 10 really, really bad earning earnings calls in a row. Um, but the fundamentals are still really solid. Definitely. Definitely. Uh, Gil Bailey's violence unveiled overrated or underrated. Oh man. I mean, everybody that's read that book um, loves it, including me. So I, I would just say it's not underrated by anybody that's read it, but it is massively underrated or just, like, just people aren't aware of it. And in, in the Girardian uh, community, it's just a fantastic book. Um, it's really one of the smartest that, that I've, I think that I've read. I mean, I, it's, if anybody really wants an intro to Girard, it's one of the first books that I would recommend actually, aside from Girard's work himself. Um, the uh, I, I even I pull the phrase from that book, which makes up uh, a chapter in my book, and it's disruptive empathy. Uh, Gil Gil uses that phrase, disruptive empathy, sort of you know the kind of empathy um, that disrupts um, a, a violent scapegoating process. Um, just really struck me, so I I, I I borrowed it, acknowledged him, but I, I borrowed it because I thought it was so powerful. So the book is just full of of rich like saturated phrases like that and, um, and really smart insights. And Gil is just a, just a great guy. I had the privilege to, to meet him up in Sonoma where he lives and he's just incredibly, incredibly great human. Definitely. Yeah. I found the book. Uh, I, I think it's criminally underrated. I just, uh, I got so much out of that book and just explaining modernity. It was just, it's just an incredible book. So I got to plug that. Um, well, Luke, thank you so much for taking the time to come on. Um, where should we send people? Where can people find you? Where should they go? You can uh, go to lukeburgess.com. Um, that's my handle on, on all social media. Uh, and I write a Substack. stack. Uh, used to be called Anti-Mimetic. I just changed the name of it uh, yesterday uh, to the fourth wall. Uh, so you can find that all on my website. Nice. And uh, I know you won't do it, but I will. I want to plug the book. It's wanted. It was incredible. I really enjoyed it. Um, and I recommend everyone go check that out. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. Overrated at this point, man. <laughs> Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thanks, Luke. <laughs> yeah. I appreciate it. Take care. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with a new episode of Narratives.